In 2020 in America, we have seen an increasing discussion and even debate going on over the ideas of race, class, gender, sexuality, and a whole host of other issues. Maybe you've been watching this and you've been concerned or perplexed by what's been going on and why there's so much division. Or maybe you've been watching this and you understand a little bit more about what is going on here and you've seen the uh, the idea at play that we call critical theory. Much of what is driving the divisions and even the uh, debates that we see today is uh, critical theory, or maybe it's not so much what is dri- driving the debate, but it is what the debate is over. The legitimacy of this theory and uh, how much we should allow to influence our cultural analysis, and especially our answers to some of the problems that we see in culture. Now, whether or not this idea of critical theory is brand new to you or not, uh, we have a guest on today's podcast that is going to really shed some light on this and help us to think through it in a uh, Christian worldview way. Our guest today is Dr. Douglas Grotheis. Uh, Dr. Grotheis is a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. And he has a, a new article out called America, Critical Theory and Social Crisis, where he examines the idea of critical theory, its origins and questions if it is compatible with the American system. Uh, in our in, in our conversation, Dr. Grotheis and I talked together about his article, about the idea of critical theory, about the American system and whether or not these two can mesh together. And we also talk about some of the Christian issues related to critical theory. Dr. Grotheis is also the author of several magnificent books. Uh, they're all some of my favorites. Uh, his biggest book, his magnum opus, is uh, his textbook, Christian Apologetics. It is uh, a, a fantastic book, a large book, a comprehensive view of a defense of the Christian faith. Uh, he's also the author of several other books, including Truth Decay, uh, philosophy and seven sentences and so on. And so we're going to include some highlights and further resources as well as links to the article that we're discussing, some of Dr. Grotheis's other articles and books all in the show notes. And so make sure that you go and check out the show notes after this episode for further resources. But without any, any more ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Douglas Grotheis. Dr. Gruheis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, really glad to have you here. Uh, years before, whenever I was thinking about having a podcast one day, you're one of the first guests that came to my mind wanting to uh, to have one here. And so I really appreciate you making the time to come and share with us. Good. I'm glad yeah. to be a part of it. Yeah. So uh, you are currently in Alaska right now. That, that's correct. Yeah, I am. I'm in a a little town called Willow, Alaska, which is about 100 miles north of Anchorage. My wife has a homestead here, her family homestead. So we've been here for about two months, and I've been doing a lot of work researching and writing, and we've been enjoying Mm -hmm. the Alaska wilderness quite a bit with our dog, and he gets to run around and jump in lakes and rivers, and he's having the time of his life. He's been a city dog up until now. (laughs) So... uh, yeah. Kind of get the best of both worlds. I can study and write and also really enjoy this amazing uh, creation that God gave us here in Alaska. Yeah. And so though you're originally from Alaska, that is not uh, currently where you live. And so 
why don't you just share with us your story and uh, particularly how you became a Christian, your Christian story, and then talk to us about your, uh, your ministry, uh, both your current ministry and then how you got there. Okay, thank you. Uh, I did just recently publish a piece called Autobiography as Apologetic at the Christian Research Institute webpage. So if people would like to know more there with footnotes, you could check that out. I was born and raised in Alaska, was born in Anchorage, Alaska, and I was not uh, raised in a very religious home. My parents believed in God, and they had me baptized. I went to Sunday school for a while, but they were pretty much Christmas and Easter Christians. Mm -hmm. And when I was in high school, I got very interested in Eastern mysticism, mostly through certain rock musicians and jazz musicians I was interested in. And then when I went to college, I studied that in more detail, also studied philosophy. So I was at a place where I was quite interested in atheistic philosophy, particularly Nietzsche, and also in mystical experiences, meditation, things like that. And during that time, would have been uh, early in 1976, I began to read a Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard and also interacted with some Christians who shared the gospel with me. And through a lot of different events, I became a Christian in, I think, June of 1976, back in Anchorage. I'd gone to college in Greeley, Colorado. And uh, since then, I've really tried to develop a well-integrated, rational Christian worldview. As a philosopher, I ended up getting a PhD in philosophy, and I've been at the at Denver Seminary since 1993 as a professor of philosophy. So that's a short version of that. Awesome. And before being a professor, you were in collegiate ministry, right? I was, yeah. Yeah. I did 12 years of campus ministry at two different campuses and thoroughly enjoyed that. So I like to speak on college campuses whenever I can because Mm -hmm. university shapes people's minds for a lifetime. And sadly, sometimes the Christian witness is not as strong as it could be intellectually on campuses. So we need good Christian philosophy and apologetics in campus ministry. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so what led you from doing uh, campus ministry for 12 years to go into teaching? Mm -hmm. Well, I thought that I could have a bigger impact on people by being a professor. I also liked the idea of having a regular salary where I didn't have to Mm -hmm. raise support And I thought it made the most sense for the kind of work I wanted to do to get what they call the terminal degree. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad that I did that. It opens up a lot of doors for ministry when you have a PhD, especially if it's a PhD from a secular school, Mm -hmm. because that wins you a little bit of credibility you might not have otherwise. And so um, what were some of the major lessons for you from collegiate ministry? What are some of the highlights that you see looking back in that time of your life of how uh, God changed you and what he taught you during that time? Mm -hmm. The first five years in campus ministry were right out of college, and I had a tremendous opportunity to read and study and teach and disciple people. I had a very carefree life in a lot of ways. I lived in a, a Christian house, had very little rent, so I spent all my money on basically books and food. <laughs> for five years until I uh, married my first wife, Rebecca, 
and uh, she she passed away two years ago. She was a tremendous influence on me in my writing and my thinking. She was an author and editor as well. I met her during campus ministry, 1983 in Eugene, Oregon. And she encouraged me to get a PhD. She thought it would be best for my ministry concerns and my abilities and so on. But I think the universities are key areas for Christian engagement because we have answers to life's deepest questions. And the answers that are typically given in a secular university are secular. And people don't often know this great intellectual heritage that we have as Christians. Or perhaps they think that to be a Christian, they have to exercise blind faith and that Christianity is not supported by reason and evidence. So being in that environment, being able to give public lectures and disciple people was extremely significant to me. And just being in that environment of classes and lecturers coming in, various cultural events is a place where I can thrive. And uh, I always try to support and encourage anyone who's involved in campus ministry for those reasons. Great. Well, I know a lot of people who are involved in campus ministry here in, in my city, and I know that a lot of them uh, listen to this podcast, so I'm sure that they are interested in that, that part of your life. And so uh, thank you for sharing about all that. Uh, let's talk about, uh, with, your, with your background and everything that we just covered, let's talk about this article that you have just coming out on uh, America, Critical Theory and Social Crisis. And uh, what is it that led you to be interested in and uh, start to research and then write on this topic? It's because of the upheaval we're seeing in our country. And I wanted as a philosopher to try to figure out what are some of the ideas that are shaping people's thoughts and inspiring their actions. And it's a diversity of factors, certainly. A lot of it is simply desperation and outrage. But a lot of what's behind the protests and the kind of language we hear is a philosophy called critical theory or sometimes called critical race theory. There's also discussion of what's called intersectionality. And what I wanted to do is try to explain what that basic worldview is and its shortcomings, especially in relation to the best of what America is, American ideals, the factors that, that make us a unique nation in the mm-hmm. history of the world. And what I'm concerned about in that article is that I don't think the critical theory can do justice to what we have as Americans, given our founding documents and our structure in civil government and in our history. I, I view critical theory really as trying to undermine the best resources we have for handling racial unrest and upheaval Mm -hmm. and so on. So I wanted to try to bring that to public attention. So the article really uh, is, is not so much a thoroughly Christian critique of critical theory. It's more, what is it? And then let's relate some of the philosophy to the American system. Mm-hmm. And is it compatible, really, with our highest and best 
ideals and ideas. And I, it's, I'm not making any kind of claim that America is a, a chosen nation or that uh, we are a thoroughly Christian country or anything like that. But I'm saying that we don't want to sell our birthright for a mess of cottage. We don't want to simply chuck the ideas of individual liberties and freedom of speech and the fact that America can reform itself through, let's say, amendments to the Constitution. Uh, there's a lot of language now about really overthrowing America, basically. I haven't seen things like this since uh, the protests, and I was a young man at the time, in the 1960s. Burning of flags, destroying public buildings, massive vandalism, mm -hmm. and so on. This is a sign of, of desperation and also a sign of renunciation of certain essential American ideals. I'm not defending the Confederacy. I'm not defending uh, statues of people who were Confederate generals, nothing mm -hmm. like that. What I try to do in the article is look at the Declaration of Independence, which is theistic. It's based on we have been given certain unalienable rights by God, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then looking a bit at the Constitution and especially at the Bill of, the Bill of Rights mm -hmm. and then comparing that to critical theory. Yeah, so I think that uh, certainly I get the impression from reading your article, but also from other research that I've been doing in a critical theory, uh, the more and more that I become acquainted with it and uh, understand it, see how it influences culture, um, how we, just your average person, may not be quick to understand what a uh, powerful ideology that this is. And I think you captured it when you said that um, that it's a revolution that you described as uh, trying to go about the ideological cancellation of the American system. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, just comment on that? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty strong claim, but I think it's warranted. Basically, a critical theory comes out of Marxism. There are a number of theories, a number of thinkers as part of something called the Frankfurt School in Germany in the 1920s, 30s. And from there, people like Max Horkheimer, Eric Fromm, Herbert Marcuse, and so on. And they were very influenced by Marx, but they wanted to extend the Marxist critique to culture. It wasn't simply a matter of economic oppression and liberation, but how can people be liberated from deleterious aspects of culture? So critical theory, like Marxism, thinks of people in terms of groups. So in Marxism, you have economic groups. You have essentially the conflict between the bourgeois and the proletariat now will eventually foment a revolution. Mm -hmm. But with cultural Marxism or critical theory, uh, you add to that mix things like gender, race, even ability, and so on. But you have this, this binary view that some are in power and some are out of power. And if you're out of power and disadvantaged, it's because you have been oppressed by those who have what's called a hegemony. I'm not sure if I use that word in the article. I should have. That word hegemony actually goes back to Antonio Gramsci. And it's the idea that certain groups based on class and gender 
and race control the discourse and control the economy, control the whole culture. So you have this idea of white privilege. And the claim is that if you're white, especially a white male, and especially if you're a white male heterosexual, that you have power and influence that you don't deserve. And you have taken basically whatever you have from people who deserve it more than you do. So it's a very oppositional, very conflict-oriented view of society. And it views people really not so much as individuals, but as members of a group. Now, there's some truth to this, obviously, because group membership affects your sensibility. It affects your worldview to some extent, your cultural assumptions. But the genius of the American system is that it, it doesn't really approach citizens as members of groups. It approaches citizens and speaks of citizens as individuals with certain rights and also certain responsibilities. And in the constitution, you have the statement, we the people, there's the idea of a covenant. Really that influenced the founders considerably. Os Guinness speaks about this in his book, Last Call for Liberty. It's a covenantal kind of approach, but it's not theo theocratic but it's covenantal in the sense of there is a God who gave us rights and we, the people are going to set out what we think the American system should be. So you've got the declaration, which is really the why of America and the constitution and the amendments as the how of America. But critical theory has so many problems, but one of the essential problem, problems is that it emphasizes group membership and group identity over individual rights and over the idea of a collective covenant. So associated with critical theory or critical race theory is also the idea of what's called identity politics. So one's political views have to be completely in step with your identity as a woman or as an African-American or as a Latino or as a white male or so on. And there's no sense of, of cohesion or trying to work together under the rule of law. It's more that you have an oppressor class and you have the oppressed. You have those that are in power, those who are out of power. And if you are supposedly in power, then your viewpoint is intrinsically corrupted by the power that you have. So you are disqualified in principle from speaking to the great social issues of the day because you're privileged. Now that just breaks down the possibility of civil discourse and making any kind of progress. So if critical theory is informing someone's social activism, the temptation and the tendency is to protest and to declare without making arguments. The idea is that we have been aggrieved, we have been victimized, so we declare our rights and we demand X, Y, and Z. And those that have put us there have no right to make an argument because their views are intrinsically corrupted by their class, their race, their gender. Now, this is not to deny the fact that, that people will abuse their power and people will abuse their wealth and people will abuse uh, some racial privileges they may have. That's certainly in play here. That's real. But to make those factors the only factors 
or to use those factors to shut down rational discourse and critical interaction is a terrible mistake because then you don't have a public square in which you can come together and listen and make arguments and work for meaningful reform with the sense of we the people. Or another phrase that's extremely important is on the Great Seal of America. It's e pluribus unum, which means out of many, one. Because the United States is a nation of immigrants, but the one has to do with the Declaration and the Constitution. We have a rule of law. We have a system that is not perfect, but it allows for reform. So we have the amendment process. And one of the things I say in the article is that we don't need a violent revolution. What we need is to be true to these American ideals and work for reform within the system. And I give some examples, some of them very obvious. 100 years ago, women got the right to vote. That's progress. The slaves were emancipated. That didn't immediately solve all the problems, obviously, for African-Americans. You had Jim Crow laws, you had lynching. But then there were other reforms, like uh, the Education Act of 1964, I believe it was, that did not allow segregation in the public schools. And there have been these incremental reforms. Now, sadly, it took a civil war to free the slaves, but the American system allows for reform and it also allows for these great freedoms like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, petition of the government for re redress of wrongs, assembly. You've got five freedoms in the first, first Amendment. I think I ticked off four. And why in the world do we go to this critical theory, which is essentially based on the philosophy that killed about 100 million people in the 20th century, that is Marxism. Think of the deaths of maybe 70 million deaths under Mao Zedong, uh, tens of millions of state-sponsored killings in Soviet Union, in Cambodia under Pol Pot. But see, this kind of Marxism is called cultural Marxism, and it doesn't necessarily wave a red flag or have banners of Karl Marx, but it's still essentially Marxist in that it views history as a struggle between groups and it does not have any kind of view of the intrinsic value of individuals. And we have that obviously in scripture, we're made in the image and likeness of God. And that sense of individual worth in a community is very much a part of the American system. It's there. And not all nations can say that. So uh, some people really argue over American exceptionalism. What does that term mean? Well, as Charles Murray said in a little booklet, no one can really dispute that the origin of America is unique. America was founded by intellectuals who thought out what a republic should be and committed it to writing. Now, it was flawed, obviously. The Constitution allowed for slavery, did not mandate slavery. And the allowance of slavery, although slavery is never mentioned, was basically a compromise between the North and the South because they had to come up with a document. They had to come up with the Constitution. And I hope everybody has noticed that the amendment process allowed to, for the uh, abolition of slavery. So 
you hear some of these people in cancel culture saying America is based on slavery and the Constitution is a racist document. And this is simply not true. It's basically a false dichotomy. It's if you can find racial flaws in American history, you can. If you can find imperfections in the Constitution, you can. Then we junk the whole thing and we go into something completely different. And I think that is a horrendous mistake. Um, it's like saying that if you, uh, you're out of shape, that instead of getting in better shape through better eating and exercise, you essentially kill yourself. <laughs> and uh, I, we should not be in a situation where we want to execute the American system. It's just too profound. There's too much within our way of life uh, that needs to be conserved. And within that system, there's a lot of possibility for constructive and significant reforms. But the worldview of critical theory does not allow for those kind of things. Yeah, and right there, I think that you you, you nailed where the conflict really lies because we there might be a lot of people who look at what is happening in the culture right now um, and the arguments going on between uh, the right and left or between the woke and non-woke, whether that is uh, just in the political world or even in the Christian world, you're seeing uh, some major divisions between the the woke and non-woke. A lot of people might look at these arguments and conflicts and be very confused over why the the arguments are so heated, why it seems um, that that the arguments are just caught in a place of a uh, of a stalemate, not able to move forward, um, and then why we're seeing such a revolutionary um, spirit among the uh, the rioters and so on throughout the country, because what we're seeing is something that goes deeper than just a, an argument over policy. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, two different worldviews going into battle with one another uh, and coming into conflict, which have a very different view of ultimate reality because you, as you pointed out, critical theory is based upon, uh, the Marxist worldview, which is atheistic and materialistic, utilitarian, versus uh, the American system, which was based on, as you pointed out, not necessarily Christian, but at least a theistic worldview. And so these two worldviews have a, a completely different conception of justice. And, yes. uh, and, and so whenever someone from a critical theory worldview is arguing for justice, or if you see this debate happening even between Christians coming from these two different uh, areas of influence. They both agree we should pursue justice, but then they cannot agree on what that means because they are being influenced by a, uh, by different worldviews, which is telling them uh, different definitions of what justice is. Um, Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I want to point out that I think that, Adherence to deeply American principles is far more than whether or not you're a conservative or a liberal, because I think Mm -hmm. that uh, someone can be fairly liberal politically and still believe America was a good idea Mm -hmm. and that we need to work to reform the system. Now, how a conservative wants to reform and how a liberal wants to reform may be very different. So I'm not trying to paint the left as uniformly critical theory or uniformly anti-American. By no means. Some of it is, definitely. 
mm-hmm. but not all of it. So what I'm trying to do in this essay is call us back to what is great and what is workable about what America is and uh, what our founding ideals are. What One thing that bothers me is that people don't know enough American history. They don't know basic civics. I mean, someone was elected to Congress recently. I won't name names. It couldn't even name the three branches of government. So if we're not learning our history, if people don't know what the Declaration of Independence says, what the Constitution says, what the amendments are, what the First Amendment is, something about American history of reform, then they may be impatient, desperate, angry, they go in the streets and they denounce America just as a radical failure. Mm-hmm. And that's, those are the actions of an impatient ignoramus, sadly. Uh, we need to study this more. I, not, I don't for a moment deny the severity and the difficulty that we find ourselves in as a nation. I'm not asking for band-aids on cancer here. I'm saying, let's look at what is healthy, what is strong, what is good and how we can work within that system to make the American experience much better. Mm -hmm. But critical theory, uh, cultural Marxism, uh, cancellation culture, I don't think is the answer to any of our problems, really. Yeah. And so to go back to cultural Marxism, you described how uh, essentially what happened through the Frankfurt School is that the Marxist ideology was taken and uh, instead of trying to be implemented into the culture through a uh, very proletariat revolution, it was uh, instituted slowly through the institutions of culture. And so you had uh, the, the uh, what was the, uh, the tenured radicals, the tenured radicals who went to the institutions. And then now, uh, decades later, we're seeing how the tenured radicals have exercised their influence past just the academic institutions into right. the broader culture. And one of the ways that we're seeing that uh, really emphasized over the past uh, several weeks and months is with the anti-racism movement. Uh, this is generally attributed to uh, Abram Kendi uh, in his book. So could you help draw the connection between critical theory, cultural Marxism, and uh, the the new like anti-racism movement and its redefinition of racism and anti-racism and so on. Yeah, no, I have to admit that I have not studied uh, the anti-racism philosophy that much per se, Mm -hmm. but in what I have picked up about comments about racism recently is that often it's, it's not very well defined and it's sort of the default category for explaining injustice or explaining disparities among racial groups. And sometimes that is the case. And it was certainly more the case 50 years ago in the United States. Um, I like the thinking of Shelby Steele, who wrote The Content of Our Character. He also has written a number of other books. And he was interviewed within the last six or eight months. And he said, I grew up under Jim Crow. And I know what real discrimination is, structural discrimination based on law. Mm -hmm. And he said, I've seen the United States change radically. Now he's an African-American and he's a historian. And he said, I don't see uh, systematic racism in our culture. I see racists. 
I see episodes, I see problems, but I don't see a system that is completely engulfed in disadvantaging people because of their race. Or I think of someone like Thomas Sowell, who was interviewed recently, and he said, well, you asked me about systemic racism. How do you indicate that? What are the measures of systematic racism? Can we test the theory? He's an economist. So he said, I don't even know that the term has a lot of meaning. Now, I have to admit, I haven't read this, this author, and I need to read his book, Anti-Racism. But in general, uh, the idea that racism is the catch-all category for whatever's wrong between the races, I think is ill-advised. Um, what do we mean by it? Now, we obviously had structural racism under Jim Crow when, when Blacks were routinely lynched when they could not freely and fairly vote, uh, when you had uh, provisions that Blacks couldn't live in some parts of a town. Now, obviously, that's structural, that's legal, that keeps people down, and that's wrong. But how much of that do we now have? Some? Yeah, I think so. Some of it may be more implicit than explicit, and we need to be aware of that, certainly. But uh, there is kind of a well, not kind of. I think there's an assumption among some people, um, particularly from this book, White Fragility, that whatever you say or whatever you do, if you're white, you're a racist, period. Because it's structural. It's a system. And you are a white in a system of what might be called white supremacy. So just ipso facto, then you're part of this huge system. And Looking at that as, an, as a Christian, as an American who, who loves America, without being a nationalist, by the way, um, I have to say, well, I have individual responsibility before God. I have to look at my conscience, and I have to ask, am I loving my neighbor as myself, whether he's red, yellow, brown, white, blue, whatever? And I don't want to be told that I belong to this guilty class I've got to look at my own conscience. So something I've been trying to do in recent months is talk to a number of my African-American friends about what's going on in the culture. I'll just say, what's your take on this? Uh, how have you experienced racism? Uh, what do you think of the ideologies that are going on? What do you think of the protests? And just try to be like James tells us, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. I had no reason to get angry in any of these conversations, but basically, you know, Dr. Grothai, shut up, white man, and listen to your African-American friends and see what they're telling you. Because I miss things, obviously, because I am a white male. You know, I've never been pulled over by a policeman because I was a white male, but I know black men that are pulled over way too much and without good justification. But then I talked to another African-American friend of mine a few weeks ago, and he said, I don't think I've ever been pulled over just because I was black. So I think we've got to be really careful in not committing uh, the fallacy of uh, hasty generalization, you know, of uh, attributing systemic dynamics to everything and explaining everything according to these major racial systems. But I think we need to ask, pointed questions, look at our own conscience, and look at the data. Now, let's look at the data. If there's a discrimination, 
district by district in public education against uh, those that make less money, the families make less money, or it works out that African-American children or Latino children uh, get less attention educationally, then let's deal with it. Let's try to find a good answer. Now, interestingly, going back to Thomas Sowell, who's my favorite economist, he says the answer to helping disadvantaged children in cities is charter schools. And he's come out with this very densely argued, fact-filled book in favor of charter schools. And interestingly, those on the left, and I think probably those holding the critical theory think that charter schools, oh no, those are conservative. You know, those are not, those are not ways, uh, charter schools are not ways of helping this kind of a problem because it doesn't fit into their political ideology. So if we've got a problem where groups are not fairly treated, let's look at the economics, let's look at the studies, and let's see what really helps. And, you know, I posted online recently that I got woke 40 years ago when I read Thomas Sowell, <laughs> because he shows that disparities among groups are not always due to discrimination. There may be other factors. Yes, some of them are due to false, or I should say unfair discrimination. But some disparities are based on other issues like the values people hold, the kind of choices they make. Uh, there's so much, there's so much to this though. But what I'm concerned about is when people uh, take on an ideology they may not even completely understand, like critical mm -hmm. theory, mm -hmm. and then use it as a weapon against everybody they disagree with. So I think we need to dig a lot deeper than that. Yeah, that's one of the very concerning things that I see too. Uh, and, and why I think it's important that we do talk about it uh, because you even see it being used as a weapon within the Christian world for people who are disagreeing with one another or maybe lean uh, more one way or the other. Um, you have uh, you have people on the one side who might be a little too quick to decry everything they see as Marxism. But then on the other hand, you have uh you, you see sometimes on the more woke side, uh, a tendency to be too quick to call everything white supremacy. Uh, I know I, I saw on Twitter recently, Neil Shinvey, who's been doing a lot of research and work into, uh, into critical theory and so on, uh, posted a tweet that got a lot of attention, a lot of retweets and so on. And one of the main things that people were saying in response was here we see slave master theology still at work. And I thought, I think I think that's a little hasty and and that's a little yeah it's a little extreme and quick to be uh, attributing slave master thinking to him. Well, here you really fall into a logical fallacy called poisoning the well. That is that uh, entire groups are written off as having nothing significant to say. So mm -hmm. if you find a buzzword you don't like, you say, "Well, that's slave master theology." Now Neil's not even white. I actually don't know what what ethnicity he is. So that's a little odd. And I just wrote an article last night, I think it may come out in the stream, on critical thinking, basic critical thinking skills we need. And I find that those that hold to critical theory very often commit certain logical fallacies, and one of them is poisoning the well. Well, you're white, we can't trust what you say, or you used a word that we associate with slave masters, so we can't accept anything that, that you say. 
So you basically got these two fallacies. One's called the ad hominem fallacy. You just say something nasty about the person. You don't deal with their argument. And then poisoning the well says entire classes of people just can't be trusted, period. Now, in some cases, that's true. I'm not going to get any racial uh, philosophy that I trust from a Ku Klux Klan member. Right? There's some groups that are just toxic. They're wrong entirely. Mm -hmm. But that's not something you want to apply to everybody. You just disqualify what is said because you may not like the particular group that they belong to. And in fact, you may misidentify what group they belong to, or they may belong to a group and belonging to that group doesn't dictate what they think about anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, good night. You've got white male heterosexual people like me who are very far left in the political spectrum or who are atheists or new agers. So one of the problems I find with critical theory is that, and this comes out of Marxism, is that it attributes too much of your identity to your social group because it doesn't have this doctrine that we're all made in the image and likeness of God and that we can think rationally, we can come up with ideas, we can test these ideas logically against reality with evidence. It's just, well, what group are you in? That determines who you are. So the old Marxism, you're in the proletariat, you're an exploited worker. If you're a bourgeois, you're an exploiting owner. But that only says something about you. Those categories are very dichotomistic and reductionistic and really don't account for reality very well at all. Yeah, and so attributing those categories to someone who disagrees with you or uh, only judging them based upon that, those categories uh, seems like a way to, to insulate oneself from disagreements and counter-arguments. Right. So uh, I, I see this especially in, I think you already brought this up, you know, in, uh, to give us a secular example and a Christian example, and you can comment, uh, on the secular example in the book white fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Uh, her argument is very much, uh, insular protecting from any counter arguments because to disagree with her or criticize her is to then prove her argument. And I, I've seen the very same thing happen in a Christian example with, uh, the author Jamar Tisby who I've noted, or I've noticed, and there's some parts of his work that I very much appreciate. I think that his historical work is excellent. Um, but then when it comes to interpretation and analysis, he always prefaces what he is about to, uh, uh, his answer with fundamentalists will say I'm a Marxist, but this. And so in, in doing that, he is immediately disarming anyone who might say, well, here's some, some legitimate logical reasons why there might be a critical theory or Marxist worldview uh, behind these answers. And so, yeah, and especially in the case of the uh, D'Angelo book, White Fragility, um, you, you see that as well. What, what would you comment yeah. on that? On that yeah, it's basically presenting what's called an unfalsifiable theory. And having an unfalsifiable theory is an intellectual defect. It's not virtuous. Uh, even as Christians, we believe Christ rose from the dead. It's the cornerstone of our faith. We believe there's good evidence for it. I wrote a 35-page chapter on it, my apologetics book. But if you can show that Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christianity is false. The Apostle Paul knew this. He faces it, 1 Corinthians 15. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. He didn't doubt for a second that Christ rose from the dead. I don't either. But my worldview, my faith in Christianity is falsifiable if you can prove or you can show me, make a better case that Jesus stayed dead than he rose from the dead, then Christianity is out the window. So a intellectually virtuous worldview knows the kind of evidence that would refute it and faces the counter evidence with reason and evidence. Mm -hmm. So if I'm talking to someone, they deny the resurrection, I'll say, okay, that's, I see your point, but I don't think it's a good point for this reason. I wouldn't say, oh, you're denying the resurrection. That's because you don't want to repent and accept Jesus. Now at some level, you know, I think that's happening, but still, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, honest questions deserve honest answers. And when you set up a political ideology such that if you disagree with me, you're part of the enemy, period, just a priori, that is a weakness of your perspective, and it disallows, in principle, rational interaction about it. And Marxists have done this from day one. You see it in the Communist Manifesto. You disagree with the Marxist program for revolution, it's because you have the vested interest of a bourgeois landowner, you control the means of production, you're threatened by what we say. It's the same dead end. It's the same deadlock. So if you have a theory of white fragility, present it, but allow that you might be wrong and you're willing to consider what would disprove your idea. Charles Darwin did this in Origin of Species. In fact, he said, if you can show that an organism could not be worked up through slow, gradual changes over time, my theory would be absolutely refuted. And in fact, that's true. It has been with something like the bacterial flagellum. That's, that's another issue. But the larger point in the theory of knowledge is that if you present an idea that cannot possibly be refuted by any evidence whatsoever, this sounds a lot more like a bad conspiracy theory than a plausible worldview. That is the sense that I get from D'Angelo, White Fragility. Uh, it sounds much more like a, a conspiracy theory or, or even a kind of strange religious movement where she's the priestess and only by uh, her, her word can you be forgiven or atoned for. Or Actually, in, in this, I'm not even sure if there is a possibility for atonement, uh, which is one of the very concerning things about this, this system of thought even if it's not in its fullness, taking root in our culture. Um, I think you see this being, uh, being manifested in cancel culture where something is dug up from someone's past years ago, whether it might be something which is, which was quite insensitive or something which was really nothing at all. And, but there's no opportunity for forgiveness and for restoration. There's only cancellation. Right. That's something that concerns me greatly, because on a biblical perspective, we can admit wrong, admit we were guilty, repent, and live a better life. And we can Mm -hmm. find forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Mm -hmm. When you have a secular critical theory approach, all you have is cancellation and rejection and insult. And you're pretty much beyond the pale because you're a member of the oppressing group you've oppressed and now you just need to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. And we need to try to pretend like you never existed. 
So there's no possibility for renewal or repentance or a new start and really for reconciliation because reconciliation happens when people come to their senses, they admit wrong, people on another side come to their senses, they admit in some ways they've been wrong. And so there's this shared humility. Now, maybe one side has been far worse than the other side, but this idea of confession of guilt and then willingness to receive and forgive and chart a better course. And I don't see that even as a possibility with critical theory discourse and the cancellation approach. It's like endless turmoil until the oppressed become in power but then even by their own theory, then they would become oppressors. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And I think that explains a lot of the really odd behavior that we see happening with, with some people, particularly in the riders and so on, where, uh, you know, there's all these videos that have come out and, and examples of these, these white women who will be just screaming and berating black police officers. And, uh, and, and somebody will point this out to them and try to stop them. And they just, become even more irrational. And to me, I think what we're seeing there is something that is not principle driven, but existentially and spiritually driven. These are extremely uh, desperate people trying to seek atonement for their perceived sins of being, of being a part of that, that uh, oppressor group, or in the case of um, whether it is protesters, rioters, or people who will go and bow down before someone of color um, in, a, in a sense of expression of remorse or atonement. And no, I'm not saying that I don't think that we can uh, express remorse for, you know, a history of sins and, and oppressions in our country and that we can do like you were saying, where we sit down with an, an actual person and talk to them about their experiences and express remorse with them. But that is very different from bowing down to them uh, in a, as we would to a deity or an idol seeking their absolution. Yeah, we seek absolution from the Lord. We seek forgiveness from people we've wronged. It's a yeah. huge distinction. So and again, we're such a conformist culture. Uh, we have all these trends and all these fads. So the thing now is to take a knee during the national anthem or just take a knee. And what does that mean exactly? Well, if it means that I agree with with most of the statement on the Black Lives Matter, Matter Matters webpage, then I'm certainly not going to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should yeah. people should go read that statement on their webpage, and I mean the official organization. Mm-hmm. Read it and see what it says, and see if you can get behind that. Yeah. Now, racial reconciliation, listening, understanding, rethinking, reading people you may end up disagreeing with—that's all good, but just taking a knee for what? Because Black Lives Matter. Of course they do. But what about the ideology behind that particular organization? Can you get behind that? Do you fully support that? And if you do, well, then support it. Mm -hmm. But I certainly can't. And I find much of what they say to be in fundamental contradiction with uh, the American system. Yes. And the Christian worldview. Yes, indeed. I think, yeah, and the problem there with, with the whole kneeling issue, not that I want to dive into that deeply, um, so I guess more tangentially with the Black Lives Matter issue is the semantic overload in the, in the phrase Black Lives Matter. 
and and how that makes it very difficult for us as uh, thoughtful Christians to uh, express uh, solidarity with uh, people in our communities who are hurting and who might be scared and, and who have experienced some racism, who maybe have experienced some uh, abuse by police or someone else, yeah. while not embracing the organization. Do you want to do you want to speak to that? Uh, right. This idea of semantic overload for just a moment. Uh, that's a good way to put it, because what do we mean Black Lives Matter? Uh, do we mean supporting the organization and their basic ideology? Some people do. Um, I can't because I'm a Christian and because I um, believe in the greatness of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, as a Christian, I believe that all people are made in the image and likeness of God. And that some groups do get the short end of the stick. We see that in the Bible. We see it throughout history. And so Christians of all people should be concerned about the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner, the widows, the orphans. It's right there in scripture. Um, Tim Keller has a good book dealing with some of this called Generous Justice. And I recommend that book. I might disagree with him on a few points, but I think it's a very strong, worthwhile biblical approach to things. But a lot of it is false dichotomy and it's kind of ideological um, intimidation. Do you think black lives matter? All right. What do you mean? (laughs) Okay. You take the knee or you don't wait a minute. Don't force me into that. Um, The issue is more, more complicated. There's more Mm -hmm. to it. And it doesn't mean I don't care if I'm not going to take a knee or if I'm, um, not going to wear the t-shirt i do but i want to get to the heart of things i want to really find out what the problem is and what the way forward may be but our culture tends to be impatient image driven slogan driven and dichotomistic because of a crisis mm-hmm. so here it is black lives matter do you agree or not all right here it is mm-hmm. Point five. you agree or not yeah Let's let's calm down and think about this a little more carefully. Yeah, and just what concerns me the most is how Christians are adopting all those attitudes and impostors that you just listed. So, as we start drawing to a, a conclusion here, um, would you lay out for us? And, and like you said in the article, this is not primarily a, a Christian critique of uh, Christian worldview critique of critical theory, but. Uh, if you could just for a, just for a minute, maybe think of uh, a couple of points of how uh, the critical theory worldview is at odds with the Christian worldview, uh, just for the sake of you know those those Christians who are uh, watching sure. or listening to this. Right. Well, it's rooted in Marxism, and as you said, Marxism is intrinsically atheistic. Marx said that the criticism of religion is at the source of all cultural criticism. And that's how it has played out in the 20th century in Red China, in Soviet Union, in Cambodia, and so on. So that's a reason right there to be concerned. Now, some people say, no, you can take out the economics from the atheist worldview. Uh, I really question that. And moreover, Marxism has no place for for individual dignity for human beings. Mm. You're a member of a group, and you're either the oppressed or the oppressor. And there's no sense of a a God-given standard for right and wrong. 
It's what serves the revolution or what does not serve the revolution. And even if cultural Marxism, critical theory is not as violent in its language necessarily, or as uh, revolutionary in terms of the workers take over the means of production, there's still very much an us them. If you're in this group, you're beyond the pale. And if you're in the oppressed group, you're automatically legitimated. And biblically, well, I'll go to Solzhenitsyn. He said, the line between good and evil cuts through every human being. So we all have places where we need to repent. We all have places where we're morally strong. So I'm not willing to view the human race in terms of the oppressors and the oppressed, period. Now, it does happen as part of a fallen world. But we're all held to God's ultimate standard of right and wrong, which is summarized, the Ten Commandments. It's further summarized by Jesus. Greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we need to ask uh, ourselves, how are we doing on that? And then come to Christ. Come to Christ for forgiveness, for repentance, for new life. Be filled with the Spirit to do God's will in the world. And then also... Just do the hard work of social analysis and be studious. That's a virtue uh, to pursue knowledge. You see that throughout the book of Proverbs. I'm reading through Proverbs again right now in my devotional time. We need to be ardent in study. So let's, let's say African-Americans are differentially treated in the United States in many bad ways. Okay. All right. What are those ways exactly? And what would help the problem? So for some, well, we just need to pour much, much more money into the public school system, and this will tend to equalize things. Well, someone like Thomas Sowell, uh, who's a black economist, he's turned 90, he's just published a new book, says, no, actually, charter schools help minority children do better. Now, that's viewed as many, many people would say, well, that, oh, that's a conservative view. You know, we can't hold that. If you're really progressive, you wouldn't hold that. Well, just hang progressive conservative for a minute. Let's just look at the data. So if we are to um, walk humbly with God and pursue justice and love mercy, then what really helps people who are disadvantaged? Let's do the work to figure that out. And as someone who's generally conservative politically, I'm not convinced that state-sponsored actions, more policies, more programs, will necessarily help. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. So uh, the critical theory folks are just uniformly left-wing progressivist in all their policies and all their ideas. Uh, that's too simple. We've really got to look at our worldview, who are human beings, how does sin affect the individual, how does sin affect culture, and then work for what is pleasing to God. And mm -hmm. In some ways, that might line up with some of what critical theory folks are saying. I think in most ways it won't. Yeah, that's excellent. And I think that right where you ended is, is what I want to emphasize before we close, how it's important for us to have this conversation so that we might then walk forward in positive ways that uh, influence our culture in positive ways and bring glory to God. Because the criticism that a lot of people who are more left-leaning or more on the woke side have towards those who would have a conversation like this one is that 
we are trying to distract from the issue of pursuing racial justice or racial reconciliation by just having a theoretical or intellectual conversation. Um, and that never moves to action. And I think that we should counter that and push back against it by saying, no, we want to have this conversation because we want to evaluate these ideas, think well, uh, have our minds conform to Christ and not uh, by the world, as Paul said in Romans 12, mm -hmm. uh, so that we then might walk forward in wisdom and, uh, and, and pursue human flourishing. Right. So uh, I just want to thank you again so much for your time here. We went over well over the time that I told you we would, but, uh, but I really enjoyed it. And I think that, and I hope that all of our viewers and listeners will as well. Uh, before we go, do you want to give, uh, you, you're the author of several books now. Uh, do you want to give just a quick book plug for any of those sure. or tell us about how uh, we can learn more yeah. about you and your writing? Yeah, I have a webpage, just douglasgrotheis.com. You'll find blog posts and links to articles and videos and so on. I have a YouTube channel. My major work so far has been a, a big apologetics book with the exciting title, Christian Apologetics, <laughs> Comprehensive Case for Biblical Faith. Mm -hmm. Came out in 2011, 752 pages. So that's my case that Christianity is true, rational, and pertinent to the whole of life. And right now I'm working on a second edition, mm -hmm. which will have five or six new chapters and all the chapters will be revised. Mm -hmm and so on. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that it was going to be five or six new chapters. So far. That's excellent. Yeah. Uh, do you want to give a preview of what topics those are going to be covering? Sure. Yeah. I think some of the most significant material will be on the atonement of Jesus because in the first edition, I spent a lot of time on what theologians call the person of Christ, like his virgin birth, his miracles, his teaching, but I didn't spend enough time on his death, the meaning of his death on the cross, shedding blood for the forgiveness of sins. And there are a lot of people that think that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense for an innocent person to die for someone else such that the guilty person is forgiven. Mm -hmm. So I got really deep into the doctrine of the atonement, stating it properly, and then looking at criticisms of the atonement, especially from a writer named Socinus in the 16th century so there's a lot of material on the work of Christ, what his suffering and death meant, probably about 50 pages. Mm -hmm. And I've got uh, new chapters on the argument from beauty a chapter mm -hmm. called in defense of the church, because a lot of apologetics books, particularly Protestant ones say Christianity is true. Okay. Go be a Christian. But they don't say really that a part of the Christian worldview is, the church, the body of Christ. And mm -hmm. this is a, a reality down through the centuries. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this apologetics book convinced you that Jesus is the way. Jesus wants you to be involved with his church. So I don't know when this dawned on me. Maybe five years ago, I thought he didn't say much of anything about the church. So I've got a long chapter called In Defense of a Church and some other material too. Excellent. Well, that all sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I have the first edition, but with, with all that new material, I'm definitely going to pick up another copy. Uh, so thank you It'll again. We're gonna... Okay. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll be patient in, in the wait. Okay. I'll be patient too. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, uh, thank you again. We're going to link uh, to that book and uh, your other books and everything else, as well as your new article 
uh, in the show notes so that everybody can go and find out more. Thank you so much for your time with us. Dr. Grodheis, I hope we'll do it again soon so we can talk about uh, some of your other areas of study and research and some of your books. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Filter with me, your host, Aaron Champ. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to check out the show notes for highlights and further resources related to the topics that we covered today. Also, if you enjoyed this show, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, if you would leave us a review, uh, if you would comment, and especially if you would share this episode with a friend, we would really appreciate it. It really helps out. Once again, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation.